0: can open to John chapter 7. So here's what the next two weeks will look like, and I'm saying this, well, for you, but also for Jamie, if he's writing questions for MC this week, just so you know, I'm going to be in John, I'm going to walk through John chapter 7 verses 1 through 24 today and highlight a few things, and then next week we'll come back to John chapter 7, and I'll walk through 24 verses to highlight different things in this text. As I was working through it, I saw two different directions that I could go in this text. There's, I think, two major themes that are highlighted here that fit the the overarching theme. But I wanted to zero in on one of those themes today, and that's the theme of the outworkings of the unbelieving heart. Now, I'm going to use the phrase a dead heart or unbelieving heart or an unregenerate heart a lot uh, over the next little while, but just to bring some clarity to anyone that may not be familiar with that language Apart from Christ, the Bible calls us dead spiritually. And those who are dead spiritually, the the, the Scripture says, they need something done to their heart. Metaphorically speaking, spiritually speaking, there needs to be a heart of stone that is replaced with a heart of flesh. That's from the book of Ezekiel. So when I say dead heart, it means someone who's spiritually dead, someone who's estranged from Christ. Now what's interesting is John seems to have a very clear agenda when he comes throughout, throughout, his, throughout his book, now I would say it's multifaceted, but I want to zero in on what seems to be a, a, a key theme as far as his agenda. So one of John's major agendas is to show the true nature, the true essence, the true or the reality of a wicked heart, of someone's heart that is dead. And if you remember from John chapter 1 all the way through John chapter 6 or up to John chapter 7, Jesus is constantly dealing with those who reject him, those who hear his message. You know, the the best theology, the best Christology, probably the most eloquent person there ever was, definitely the best theologian there has ever been. And still they reject his disciples seeing miracles disciples who were privy to these things taught these things still many of them in chapter 6 walked away It begs the question why well it's because of a heart deadness the crowds that stood there after he fed thousands and thousands he fed the multitude. You know, And this is historical account. This has not been refuted because there are so many witnesses to this, probably 25,000 witnesses to this event that actually happened, and yet people are not writing to really try to refute this. Why? Because it's historical evidence. You don't have people trying to refute the Declaration of Independence because there were people there, there were witnesses. And this is how this works. But these people saw these things. They heard Christ's teaching. He had compassion on them. He spent the day teaching them. And he performed this miracle of taking five loaves and two fish and feeds a great multitude. And still, the people didn't believe. The nobleman's son, if you were the nobleman, came to Christ and said, Hey, can you heal my son? My son's dying. And how does Jesus respond? He says, You, you, you won't believe. You don't, you don't believe. The nobleman said, Just heal my son, please. Heal my son. He has a temporal, physical need. I want you to meet it. He was at his wit's end, and Jesus does what? He meets that need. And the nobleman eventually believed. But at first, his dead heart wouldn't allow him to see what he had to see. His dead heart wouldn't allow him to see the remedy that he needed to deal with this internal problem. And that's taking a dead heart and giving it life. So my objective today is just piggybacking onto what John's agenda is, I believe. John keeps revisiting these things. You may say, well... You and Austin seem to be saying a lot of the same thing every, every sermon. That's because John keeps saying the same thing. We're just walking through the text. If John's going to say it here, he's going to say it here, he's going to say it again. There's reason for the repetition. So if John's going to be repetitious, if the Holy Spirit sees fit to make these things repetitive, then we're going to be repetitive with it. Because there's some substance to it and there's some meaning behind the fact that he keeps bringing up this issue of spiritual death, this issue of dead-heartedness and the fact that the gospel is the only remedy to these things. So my objective today is that we might see and understand the outworking, the outworking of the unbelieving heart. I want us to walk through a few outworkings of the unbelieving heart. There's a lot of things that are happening in this text, which is why I'm gonna revisit it next week and deal with different aspects of the text, but I kept seeing over and over again John highlighting these areas this is where they, they show their unbelief. This is where you see the byproduct of a dead heart. Because this is a very real issue. Everyone is born estranged from God. Everyone is born with a spiritual deadness. And they have to have life in order to be right with God. And this is, the, the, this is the redemptive history. There has to be life given in order to be right with God. And that's what we want. We want to be right with God. We don't want to be separated from God. We don't want to spend an eternity separated from him, which I believe. We want to be right with God, but there's a way to do so. So my objective is to see and understand the outworkings of the unbelieving heart and to help you and to help me, to help us foster a greater concern for those who are perishing. Because there's ways that we can approach someone who's antagonistic, someone who's a mocker, someone who's a scoffer, someone who is kind but just unbelieving. There's a way that we should approach them, a way that we should dialogue, and a way that we should engage them, and a demeanor and a disposition we should have towards people like that. But I think we first need to come face to face with the reality that, that, that dead-heartedness is where we all begin. And most of the people that you rub shoulders with every day, you say, why do they behave this way? Or why do they act this way? Or why is it that, that, that I'm sharing these things and I'm showing grace and I'm showing mercy and I'm laboring over the gospel? Why is it that over and over again, it's just disbelief after disbelief? And the answer is simple. It's because we're dealing with dead hearted people. And I'm just using biblical language. I don't have any kind of grudge against people that don't believe I'm not mad at them, I'm not angry at them. I want to show them grace, the same grace that brought me out of my unbelief, that restored my soul, that changed my life. And I think there's a certain disposition we need to have, but to begin, we need to understand what John is emphasizing, and that is that deadheartedness is a reality. So outworking number one. The unregenerate heart is so vile, is so vile that the response to purity, to perfection, To love, which we see in Jesus' ministry thus far. How did the people respond to the nature of Jesus' ministry, to his conversation, to his kindness, to his miracles, to the gifts that he gives them both in word and deed? How do people respond? They respond with vitriol, with hatred, with hostility, with unbelief. So the unregenerate heart is so vile that the response to purity, perfection, and love is what? Hatred. And if you look in the text in verse 1, it begins, it says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So that's evidence number one of this outworking. And I've compiled two of the evidences that I see in the first few verses to go under this first outworking. First is they were seeking to kill him. Second, if you move down to verse 7, it says, The world cannot hate you, he says to his brothers. And I'll give you a context for that in a moment when we get to it. He says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. It hates me because I testify against it. So you have two things that are indicative of this dead heart. There's a desire to see his life come to an end. Whether it be jealousy or whatever it was, they rejected his message. They rejected his claims. They rejected his self-identifying statements of who he was, i.e., God Almighty. And they rejected it. But they didn't just reject it. The tale of the tape is this that they didn't just reject it. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to put an end to it. But what had Jesus done? He said, I'm the bread of life. I want you to have life. I want you to be changed. I want you to be different. I want you to have true joy. I want you to have true success, as success really matters in the kingdom of God. I want you to have these things, but how do they respond? We'd rather you be dead. It takes a crowd of thousands upon thousands and says, I will meet this temporal need, but I will also give you this discourse on the bread of life so that you can see and you can hear these words of life because the desire is that you actually have life, life that matters. But the response is what? Vitriol, hatred, a desire for him to die because the unregenerate heart is so vile that that's how it responds to the things of God. Unbelief, hatred, hostility, sarcasm mocking scoffing and i don't dislike these people my heart is broken for these people and that should be our disposition towards these people so the jews desired to kill jesus and they hated him what kind of heart is in a man that would see and hear the things that jesus did and the things that jesus said that was for their good What kind of heart must be in a man that he would respond or that we would respond wanting him to die? It has to be a dead heart. It has to be a wicked heart. It has to be a heart that hasn't been changed, that hasn't been, well, not changed, but replaced. It has to be that kind of heart that's at work inside those who do not believe. And here's the reality. I can say these things in front of someone who's an unbeliever, but these things don't compute. These things are very much for the church here today so that you can know what's around you so that you can know the reality. I'll unpack a warning that I believe John is giving to the unbelievers because I absolutely think that that's there. But just understand that you coming up to someone, this is a little application saying, by the way, your, your heart's just dead. It's not like the light's going to come go on in their minds. Oh, I realize that I'm dead. Someone who's estranged from Christ is in darkness. The idea of darkness and lostness, to use that language, shows that you don't know where you are. You don't know that you're estranged from God when you are. You don't know that you're lost and need to be found when you are in that state. You don't know that. That's the heart of Ephesians 1 and the heart of Ephesians 2 is that that's where you were firmly rooted, firmly planted in your unbelief. You were ignorant and did not know otherwise. You needed the light of God to be cut on for you. You needed a heart transplant to take place spiritually so that you could, at that time, see and desire Jesus. That's that whole discussion last week and the week before about the active agent, God doing the drawing, and the passive agent. That's the essence of the divine doctrine of election is that we're here, camped out in this world where we don't want God, we're hostile towards God, we're enemies of God, but then God... Being rich in mercy, Ephesians 2, makes us alive together in Christ. God activates, God works, and he pulls us from a place that we had no desire to be pulled from. That's the reality. That's what the Bible describes. So what kind of heart is in a man that would desire the death of someone whose words and works were for their good, for their benefit? Someone with a dead heart. This serves as strong indication concerning the corruption of man's heart. Calvin said the heart is an idle factory with good reason. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The Bible never instructs us to follow our heart. Never says that. Hollywood tells us that, follow your heart. Oh, that tugged on my heartstrings. Well, probably not. The scripture says be, trans- be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by the way you think, the way you interact with truth, with knowledge, with realities, and let that let that determine the direction that you go. It's interesting how Christianity, a religion that truly offers peace, right? I mean, that's Christianity. It offers peace. When you look at Islam or all these others, maybe maybe you someone can say, you know, well, if you're if you're a Buddhist or if you're something like that, then that's a peaceable religion. But nothing offers what Christianity offers, and nothing answers the questions that Christianity. Answers, and I love talking to people about Christianity. I love talking to people that, that have questions and, and doubt because Christianity does, in fact, answer those questions. It is logical. It answers the question of morality. It answers these type of questions of purpose because everyone wants to know purpose. Everyone wants to know what's my purpose. We want to know, you know what's, what's the objective standard of morality. Where does it even come from? Because if you're honest with yourself, you have to ask, especially if there's a non-believer. where does morality come from? Well, this society here or this tribe here or this people group here, they decided. But that doesn't answer the question. Sometimes these shots are taken at answering questions that are irrational, illogical, and not helpful at all because it doesn't get back to a root. It says, well, each people group, they have their own way of doing things. But there had to be an objective standard of morality. There had to be a place from which morality was launched and understood. Why is it that I care that a baby is aborted? Why would that matter to me? There has to be something in me. There has to be something in me not to just care about the aborted babies. There has to be something in me that cares about just doing right. Societally speaking, as a Christian, whatever, there has to be some standard of morality. Christianity offers those answers, but it's interesting how a religion that truly offers peace, that offers hope, eternal hope, and happiness, it's a Religion that explains that there is a substitute who stood in place of you because you couldn't stand where you would have had to to be right with God. But that Jesus, an advocate, a substitute, stood in your place so that you may have life with God. And yet the dead heart wants nothing to do with this. wants nothing to do with this. The rejection of Christianity is ultimately this. I want to kind of explain, as I do sometimes, the mechanics of this. When someone rejects, here's something, whether... Whether they acknowledge it or whether it's, you know, uh, subconsciously, this is kind of what's going on. When someone rejects Christianity, understand this, Christianity does what? It places Jesus at the center of all things. Everything revolves around Christ, as so does the scripture it all revolves around christ redemptive history at its center is the redeemer jesus so all of christianity all of the bible it points to jesus he's the centerpiece he's the focus he's the umphalus. he's all of these things okay just threw that out for tina you can look it up later jesus is the centerpiece okay that's jesus what happens is when you have a man who's not rooted in christ who's not in christ he does what he places himself in the center of his universe This is secular humanism, which all of us are prone to secular humanism. We want what we want because we are our greatest idols. All sin is rooted in idolatry. I do this sin because I want to feel this way. I do that sin because I want to be satisfied in this way. I want to be appeased in this way. I don't want that. I want this. I become an idol. My time becomes an idol because I want to spend my time doing this way. My materials become idols because I want this to satisfy me. So you see the idea of idolatry and how rampant it is. So it makes sense that a man, apart from Christ, would not see Christ as the center, but would see himself as the center of his universe. And when someone like me comes up to someone like that and says, hey, you've got to take a step away from the center, and Christ has to become the center. You, you don't have idols. You don't have anything else that you worship. You worship Christ and Christ alone. Because no one or no thing is worthy of your affections, of your allegiance, of your time like Jesus is. And to the dead heart, that is repulsive. No wonder there's rejection. Are we surprised when I'm saying you are currently the center of your universe as you think? I'm saying you can't be that. You have zero control. Jesus has all control. You are completely unworthy apart from Christ. He is absolutely worthy of being in the center and worthy of your absolute affections and allegiance. And that doesn't mesh well with someone who's estranged from Christ. That's a dead heart that can't see that. Until man is regenerated, he remains the center of his own universe. And anyone competing with him for the center better watch out because the unregenerate man will not stand for that. And that's why you get resistance. That's why you get pushback. That's why you get rejection. I think those are some of the mechanics of what happens there. This, in essence, is why the Jews hated him and therefore sought to kill him. This is why anyone rejects Jesus. It wasn't just, oh, he did this miracle. How dare he do miracles? It wasn't just, oh, he's saying these things. But it was what he was saying he was supposed to be and what he was in actuality pitted against who they viewed themselves to be, the Lord of their own domain, the center of their own universe. This is man's problem, man's man-centeredness. We would say that it makes no sense to bite the hands that feed you. We've heard this before. And John just continues to really divulge the wickedness of, of man's heart apart from Christ. Look at all the things that Jesus did. Jesus is saying, look, you want real hope? I've got it for you. Have, have, have this, I'm the fountain of, fountain of living water. Have this, I'm the, I'm the bread of life. I'm the true bread of life. I'm the true vine, John 5. I'm all of these things. If you, if you eat of my flesh and you drink of my blood, we talked about what all that means. If you take in what you need to treat your internal problem, you will have life. And guess what? I'm doing the work for you. I'm doing the work. You don't have to do this. You don't have to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. You just trust me to stand in your place as the substitute. But the dead heart says, this is nonsense. And it's not just nonsense. It's reprehensible, and therefore the response is hatred. The response is hatred. So we would say that it makes no sense to bite the hand that feeds you who in the right mind would fan away someone who was there, not just to warn them from danger, but to deliver them from danger. You see, Jesus didn't just say, I'm warning you, stay away from these things. Absolutely, he warns people. But Jesus is not just someone who warns, he's someone who delivers, because they're different. They're very different. If your house is on fire and you're in it, and I just stand outside and say, your, your house is burning, You might want to wake up, grab your photo albums, grab your nice guitars, and then your kids, whatever it is, you need to get out. You need to get out of there. I'm warning you, but I'm not delivering you. A fireman does what? He goes into the flames, and he rescues those who are in peril. He's not just warning. He's delivering. And Jesus is not just one who warns. We're the ones who warn. We're the one who says, you know, here's what the Scriptures say. The scriptures, the words of life, divinely inspired, inerrant, infallible, pure, perfect, all of these things that we believe, they've been tested, tried, and they've they've succeeded. They've made it through all the testing. They've made it through all the trials for years and years and years and years. The accuracy rate over the years is through the roof. It's proven itself. It's self-attesting. And I can pick up this word of God and say, here's what it says. Let me give you a warning. But I'm not your deliverer. But in the warning, I'm saying here's the reality, but here's the hope. Here's what could suppress you and depress you, but here's the hope. Here's what enchains you. Here's what binds you, but here's the hope, and here's the way to be free from those things. You see, we warn, but God delivers. But it's paramount that we give this warning. You know, you and I look at the Old Testament and it brings the New Testament into focus. Okay, that's the beauty of the continuity between the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. They, they exist, they lean on one another. We can, we can look at the Old Testament through the lenses of the New Testament and we can look at the New Testament through the lenses of the Old Testament because they complement one another. And so things become in focus Once we have these things. Jesus' arrival was the first bridge that connected the gap between the writings of the prophets and their actual fulfillment. Jesus comes and he fulfills these things. So you would think that a logical mind, you would think that a rational mind would say, we're familiar with the writings of the prophets. These Jews would have been familiar. The Pharisees absolutely would have been familiar with the writings of the prophets. And they would know what the scripture said about the coming king about the seed of promise the seed of the woman they would know these things and we look at it in hindsight and say jesus matched these things to a t but they didn't see it why because a dead heart someone who's dead does not have the eyes to see these things not only did they not see it but they refused it when the language became plain to them or at least they heard what was being said not only did they refuse it, but their response was hatred and it was malice towards it. The wickedness of the heart is never more revealed than when the essence of love produces in us the deepest of hatred. You want to know what a obvious outworking of a dead heart is? When the response to Jesus' words and his works are hatred. That's the essence of a dead heart. And that's the first outworking. Outworking number two. The most likely to believe and those with most reason to believe still refused Jesus as the Messiah. So look at the text. I'll just read from verse two. Now the Jews' feast of booths, which we'll discuss next week. I'll give you details on that and why it's relevant. This feast was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may seek the work or the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. His brothers say, Jesus, go show these works. They believed in the miracles that he did. But they say, go, do more miracles, do more miracles. But the brothers didn't believe that he was the son of God. The brothers didn't believe that he was who he is saying that he is. And it's interesting how you can be so close to truth but miss it. It's just interesting. And there's people's stories, their lives that really substantiate this over and over and over again. I think of a guy named Chuck Colson. If you don't know the name Chuck Colson, you will. Chuck Colson is known as the infamous Watergate hatchet man. So we know what happened in the early '70s at Watergate with Richard Nixon and all of those fun things. This is what one article said about Chuck Colson: He was a major contributor to the unsavory moral climate inside the White House. This guy was—he 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 was, he was kind of a scumbag. He was uh, unethical. He was a, a, a lawbreaker, just a, a, a sleazeball. This is who Chuck Colson was. Chief counsel to President Richard Nixon. He was indicted in 1974 with trying to cover up the Watergate scandal, but something interesting happened to Colson when he went to prison. He trusted Christ. Now, it's understood that Colson had been exposed to the gospel for years. He understood the gospel. He could articulate the gospel, but never bought it, never believed it. But then one day, according to God's divine providence and appointed time, he goes to prison. And a lot of people question, ah, you got that jailhouse religion. Okay, you get there, you're at your wit's end, you're going to turn to something that's a little bit better. You've tried it your way, now you'll try it Jesus' way. Throw Jesus a bone, because that happens, I get it. But it wasn't the case with Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson had a legitimate and revolutionary encounter with Christ. He rejected, he despised, he was, was hostile towards God for all these years, and then all of a sudden... God says, I'm going to change you. I'm going to replace this heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And then 35 years after that, in 1974, Colson was still burning white hot in love with Jesus. Written books appeared on television program after television program proclaiming the kingdom of God, proclaiming repentance, proclaiming the gospel. Colson was legitimately saved. Now the brothers of Jesus who didn't believe him at the time after possibly seeing him for 30 years or less. I don't know when, how, what their ages were in comparison to Christ. But they had a front row seat to Christ's entire life. I mean, They saw things that are not written and that you and I most definitely haven't seen or maybe even considered. But they would later come to Christ. This happens all the time. Costy Hinn, Benny Hinn's son. We know Benny Hinn. We know the ministry that he runs. Supposedly he has repented. The time, time will tell. But Costi Hen, if you've seen American Gospel, I love his story. He traveled around with Benny Hen for years, living this lavish life. He would go to the nicest hotel room. Sometimes their bill would be $25,000 just to stay in the room for a few nights at these lavish hotels, Driving the nicest of vehicles, and just prey on the poor, prey on the impoverished, so that they could pad their pockets with money. And one day, after all of these years, Costi was exposed to the gospel. Yes, he was exposed to a false gospel. He didn't believe. He, he, he maybe thought he believed, but he was dead. And then one day, all of a sudden, he's standing there. and He says, this can't be right. And the Lord took that heart of stone after all of that time and replaced it with a heart of flesh. And Costi never looked back. And now he proclaims the kingdom of God estranged somewhat from his family in an interview that I saw with him because they're upset with him because he should have kept that business to himself or at least within the family. And so he's paying somewhat of a price, but no price compared to the weight of glory that the Bible promises for those who are in Christ. Jesus' brother did finally believe, but, and his brothers were James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude, by the way, they did finally believe. But for that season, they did not. Despite what they saw, despite what they heard, they didn't believe. It's one thing for the crowds to witness miracles and still not believe, but it's a different level altogether when Jesus' own brothers reject him. I mean, notice this pattern. It's interesting. This is what John takes us through. John first takes us to a crowd. And here's a crowd that really doesn't know Christ. Maybe they've heard of him. He's the carpenter. He's Mary and Joseph's boy. Maybe nothing special about him. It hadn't been revealed, right? Jesus is living just like everybody else, conducting himself in society, following societal norms, and what happens? Then he becomes outspoken, and then all these things start to happen, and things start to stir. The the dust is kicked up, and people reject. People get angry, and the crowds want only what he can do for them and not who he is to them. But then John says, not only was it the crowd that really didn't know Jesus intimately anyway, then he moves to his disciples, those who would know Christ more intimately. And yet, they walked away from him. He gives his bread of life discourse, and what do they do? They walk away from him. These are people a little bit more closely related to Jesus. Maybe they were privy, I would say they're definitely privy to see more things, to witness more things. And yet, they walked away. John chapter 6 and then John zeros in more closely and he says not just the crowds not just the disciples but those who literally lived with Jesus for all if not the majority of for the majority if not all of his life and yet they didn't believe and this is a real household by the way I mean, Nathan comes from a very large family. Some of you come from large families, small families, so you understand family dynamic. Sometimes it's like this is great, and sometimes you're like, "I want to destroy all my siblings." You know what I'm saying? I mean, I, 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 I my sisters never want to destroy me, but I know that I want to destroy them. You know, so I, I, I get it. I get. It, I see it in my own house. You know, I heard a comedian one time, a Christian comedian, talk about children, and 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 why God, this parenting, this parent-child relationship, is unique. And he says, why are we stronger? Why are we smarter? Why are we these things compared to our kids? He said, because the kids, if they could, would kill us and outsmart us, given the chance. You know, because just little broken humans that don't understand our rationale sometimes don't get it, and, but given the chance, they might try to take us out, right? So family dynamic, and this was no different for Jesus and his brothers. Jesus was sinless, but Mary and Joseph were not. Jude, Simon, Joseph, James, they were not any others in the family not not sinless but consider that this is a very real family and I'm just I'm bringing this up because I like to put myself in the position of those brothers and what they witnessed for all of those years in seeing Christ you and I are used to these things you and I are used to what is normative as fighting and cheating and blaming and taking toys and not sharing toys and just every single night feeling like you know what we need restraints we need muzzles you know we need tranquilizers we need to do something with these kids before i go nuts we understand this we understand this dynamic these boys this family had a front row seat to jesus life you would think that his miracles and his teaching would be the final piece to the puzzle Okay, we've seen Jesus this way. Now he's saying these things. Oh, that makes sense. Jesus never cheated. He never did that. He never stole anything. Maybe I blamed him, but let's be honest, I have no proof. Jesus never stole anything. He didn't steal my favorite toy or rock or whatever they played with. He didn't didn't do that. He never complained. He never grumbled. When Mary said, Jesus, eat your vegetables, he just said, yes, ma'am. And he tore him up. And that's what Jesus does. You know that Mary must have looked at Jesus sometimes differently than she looked at the other kids. I mean, just sit at the table with me for just a second. All the kids are doing their thing, and Mary's just, Jesus is so cooperative. He eats his vegetables, cleans his plate, happy plate Jesus, and, oh, she looks at the other kids like, you know, why can't you be like Jesus, Right? Mom, you never give Jesus those I want to destroy you looks. Well, you never send Jesus to his room. Well, boys, Jesus is perfect, literally perfect. <laughs> he never backtalked, never showed disrespect, never lost his temper when playing ball or whatever they played. I mean, he was a, he's a guy. I mean, I remember playing ball in my backyard or wherever, and I remember if I struck out or if something didn't go my way, I was ready to fight. So we did. We just didn't tolerate that kind of stuff. Or whatever it was. You get guys together, especially when you're young, whether you're wrestling around or whether you're competing in some way. I don't care if it's video gaming. I don't care. I mean, I've, admittedly, here's some confession from one of your pastors is I've gotten pretty hostile at a TV over a video game before. That's not a good thing. That's a major indictment on me. But this is the reality. This is my brokenness coming out all the time. Some of my closest of friends, I've come to, I've come to blows with them because of just backyard antics and shenanigans and just male ego and pride, even out of a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old boy. But not Jesus. I'm sure he never did any of that kind of stuff. Did Jesus ever, did he wrestle with his brothers? This is where my mind goes, forgive me, did he wrestle around with his brothers? If so, I mean, he's omnipotent, so (laughs) for crying out loud, he could have destroyed them with a word. Did he let them win because he's humble? You know, did he wrestle at all? I don't know. I get, the, I get this, this, this image in my head. I love the, the movie The Princess Bride. And uh, no comments from you, Evan. I love this movie The Princess Bride, but there's a scene where Andre the Giant, is, is his, his character, Physic, is fighting, the we- fighting Wesley, who is the dread pirate, Roberts, and he's going to save the princess, and he has to go through these series of men who are obstacles, one in a sword fight, one in a battle of strength, and the other in a battle of wits. So he comes to the second of his foes, and that's Physic, Andre the Giant. And Andre the Giant has a rock in his hand and Wesley has a sword in his hand and he comes into the frame and you see a rock burst against this giant boulder and the rock's probably like this big. And Wesley looks at the giant and he says, so what do we do now? The giant says, you put down your sword and I'll put down my rock and we'll kill each other as God intended, sportsmanlike. And Wesley says, to be honest, I think the odds are slightly more in your favor when it comes to hand fighting. And Andre said, It's not my fault being the biggest and the strongest. I've seen the movie a few times. <laughs> and then they start to tangle up. And he's just running up on him. He tries to bear hugging. He can't wrap around Physic. And Physic's just sitting there, you know, like it's a gnat or something, you know. And he, and he backs up, and, and Wesley says, Look, man, are you just fiddling around with me or what? And Andre the Giant says, Look, I want you to feel that you're doing well, you know and 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 sometimes i i I think maybe that was the relationship with jesus and his brothers you know i just want you to feel like you're doing well sometimes i mean i could destroy you no no question i don't know what that dynamic was but i know this jesus never sinned so there was something unique about his family structure there was something unique that the brothers were exposed to they didn't see the things that you and i see from our siblings they didn't see that You know, I mean, could you imagine? I don't want to. I don't want to just run with this for too long. I could, but here's my brain just thinking on this. He's always right. He's always right. He's omniscient. You know, I mean, and and I, I, I I like being right. Everybody likes being right if you're somewhat normal. You can imagine these boys. You can imagine them. Hey, this is this or that is that. Here's my opinion, and Jesus just steps in and says, "I'm going to drop it right here." this is what's right he's always right now maybe they didn't believe him or maybe they didn't know that but the reality is that these brothers despite what they saw for all of these years despite the miracles when jesus ministry started that they were witness to despite the level of teaching that they were exposed to that they that they knew that jesus taught at that moment they didn't believe And I think this is a key indication or an outworking of a dead heart. And we talked about this last week. You can be exposed to the greatest, most divine of truths. And if your heart is not regenerated, if your heart is not alive for Jesus, it won't land on you unless God has imparted faith, unless God has done this work in you. You see, the same explanation given in order to understand the disciples who left in chapter 6 is the same explanation given to understand how his brothers have known him for all these years and still haven't figured it out. The disciples left, the crowds left still not believing. It's the same explanation. It's deadness. And that's outworking number two. Outworking number three, and these are a bit shorter, so indulge me. The unregenerate heart is dead to such a degree, listen to me, that it proves resistant or impervious. It proves resistant to the words of life. Let me give you a breakdown of what I mean by that because it can sound not okay. Let me read it first and then let me explain it. The unregenerate heart is dead to such a degree that it proves impervious or resistant to the words of life. To be clear, to be clear, the dead heart is dead to such a degree that it proves resistant to the words of life until until it is not resistant to the words of life. This is a little doctrine known as irresistible grace. And this is exactly what the point is here. So listen to the text here. You have, I think we're in verse 14. So we're moving forward. The brothers say, hey, Jesus Do these works, do all of these things. Jesus said that then my time has not yet come. Verse 6, he says, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, Jesus says. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in So he tells them one thing, he does another. Let me me just give you a preview to next week because I will answer that question next week. But consider it in relationship to what Jesus says to Mary when they're at the wedding in Cana. Mary comes up to him. The wine is gone. Jesus says what? What does this have to do with me, woman? My hour has not yet come. And then what does Jesus do? He takes care of the problem. Same scenario here. Jesus is saying, hey, you know what? You're telling me to go. I'm not going to go. My time has not fully come. But then Jesus goes anyway. I'll unpack that next week, okay, and those implications. But to stay on track, we'll keep moving forward. But his brothers had gone up to the feast. Jesus also went up. Not in public, but in private, the Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple, and he began teaching. The Jews, therefore, get this, they marveled. They marveled at him, saying, How is it that this man has learning, but he has never studied? How does he have learning, but he doesn't have a formal education? So Jesus answered them My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And that's for next week. But focus in on the fact that they marveled at him. You see, to be clear again, the dead heart is dead to such a degree that it proves resistance to the word of life until it's not. Here's the mechanics of the gospel's power and salvation the gospel is the power of god unto salvation for all who believe right straight out of romans 1 that's where the power is but this power has a specific designation regarding to salvation if you are not in christ the gospel's power is not activated in your life you don't have christ you're not saved You're not benefiting from the gospel. This is the essence of John 3.16. For God so what? Loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever did what? Believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. What does that mean for those who don't believe? It means the gospel is not effective for you. Because it's only effective for those who believe. The gospel becomes salvifically effective to us at the point of belief. Our belief in the gospel is the response and the inevitable byproduct of heart regeneration. I know I'm saying a lot of things. If this confuses anyone or I'm moving past, I'll send you my notes so that uh, you can work through those if you're interested in that. So again, our belief in the gospel is the response and the inevitable byproduct of heart regeneration. In other words, you don't have people that truly believe in the gospel and put on the Lord Jesus Christ who are not saved. Therefore, if God hasn't regenerated a heart first, the gospel falls on deaf ears. This is what the Bible calls rocky soil in the parable of the sower. This is what is explained in the scriptures. What I just walked through is the mechanics of what the parable of the sower is describing. There's soil, there's, there's seed that fell on rocky soil and fell on fertile soil. The fertile soil is the one who God's drawing And what happens is it falls and it takes root and God does a regenerating work and those people necessarily and inevitably respond to Christ and the invitation to come. But if it falls on the rocky soil, the birds just come by and they consume the seed. And it is of no benefit. That's what this means. So when you look here, they're marveling. The interesting thing, at first glance, the marveling of the Jews may seem like good news. However, they were more concerned with how he spoke rather than what he said. How is this man saying these things? It's not just eloquence. It was something to do with with the way he packaged things, the way he presented things. But the concern wasn't so much the heart of what he said and the power. It was lost on them. One theologian said this, It was not their consciences which were exercised, but their curiosity that was aroused. And there's a big difference there. You see someone who's being, someone who's been born again, someone who has had a heart transplant, spiritually speaking, they hear these words of life, and it stirs their conscience, it stirs their affections, and they say, I want more, because these are the words of life. For someone else, it's nonsensical. The outworking of the dead heart is that it, is that it cannot see truth nor believe the words of life when spoken. I know that it seems that we've revisited these, that this several times in the book of John, but it's only because, again, that John has revisited these things. So here's what John is doing for us. I believe John has offered us a warning here, a warning to any readers that may not be in Christ that deadness is a reality and that deadness will lead to eternal separation from God. And it's a warning to us that we've been given the words of life in the Scriptures Not that we are life or the bread of life in ourselves but that we are connected in such a way to the bread of life that he has given truth to us that we may share this truth as conduits, as agents of this reality so that we can share it and trust his work to do what it's going to do. And we need to take seriously the commission that we've been given to be forthright, to be honest, to be consistent with the truth. But he also gives us answers. This text is one... Uh, This text and the ones preceding gives us a window into how we can labor in our evangelism, how we can exhaust ourselves sharing the words of life and yet have them rejected or even despised. Unless the heart be made alive and and we're given eyes to see or they're given eyes to see, Jesus will not be seen won't be seen just like the brother saw all these things the crowd saw all of these things the disciples saw all of these things and on and on and on that your family members your friends your peers have heard you share the gospel they've seen evidence of the gospel in your life they've seen this identity shift that has taken place because you're not who you once were and it's lost on them and the answer is clear it's because there's a dead heart and so we labor in giving the gospel and god works with the gospel and he works with his regenerating power and the two are necessary components of one another and God brings about life so God gives us the warning through John he gives us answers to some of these difficult questions and frustrations that we face when we labor in evangelism and then he gives us his grace and grace is found in knowing that we were dead with no inclination towards Christ just like anybody that's not in Christ that we confront As that we're no different that we're no better that it's grace that has made the difference. And we want the same grace to be bestowed on those who don't have Christ that was bestowed upon us. And that's outworking number three. The final, quickly, outworking number four. The unbelieving, wicked heart often abandons all rational thought, logic, and consistency, but it always embraces hypocrisy. It abandons Logic, reason, consistency, rational thought. Because the Bible provides a rationale. The, the Christianity provides a rationale for all of these hard questions. But when there aren't eyes to see and when there aren't ears to hear, it's an abandoning of these things and an embracing of untruth or an embracing of hypocrisy. Why do you seek to kill me? Is what Jesus says. Why do you seek to kill me? If you're moving forward, it says, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. Well, let me go up. Sorry. Verse 16. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks of his own authority or on his own authority seeks his own glory, to be discussed next week. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Here we go. So, verse 19, Jesus calls out their hypocrisy. He says, Has not Moses given you the law? He's given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law. They're upset with Jesus because he healed an invalid of 38 years on the Sabbath. So, that's their rationale behind really wanting to kill him. Now, there's Things rooted more deeply than that, obviously, but that's what they're saying. That's their rationale. we want to kill you. You're a lawbreaker. He says, are you not lawbreakers? Is Moses not the one that you follow? Is he not the one that has given you the law that you say is right and good and that you follow, yet you don't follow it? You're hypocrites. The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcised a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man received circumcision so that the law of Moses might not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? So Jesus calls out their hypocrisy because what you're seeing is an unbelieving, wicked heart that abandons rational thought, it 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 abandons logic, it abandons consistency, and it embraces hypocrisy. I think of those that stand in protest like Aaron and Antoine going last Sunday to, the, to talk to the people that um, for the, uh, uh, what was it Aaron, the, uh, the, the, the drag queen story hour over in Greenville and they go there hoping to engage people in conversation. Some people they had conversations with but there was a number of people with signs and all of this and not even giving them a chance to say a word. Not even introductions, they're ringing bells in their face, screaming at them, you know, just being very hostile towards them. And so, these are people that say, we want tolerance. And you know people like this. Equality and tolerance, yet their behavior is so intolerant. It's the epitome of hypocrisy. This is exactly what Jesus is calling out. Look, it would only seem rational to think that Jesus is the Messiah. Here's why. His arrival fulfilled prophecy that would have, they would have known, especially the Jewish leadership. The teachings of Jesus and his self-identifying statements would have been consistent with what was shared with the forefathers. They would have known this. The Old Testament is filled with types and shadows that point us to the Messiah, and Jesus was most clearly, even up to this point in his ministry, was most clearly that Messiah that they would have been familiar with as far as the promises of the one to come. Fast forwarding in time here, his death played out just as the prophet Isaiah would have said, but still there are those that won't believe and didn't believe even at that point. You see, the dead heart is incapable of making sense of supernatural realities. The scripture says that it's impossible. It cannot do so. said because those things are spiritually deceived. I mean, I'm sorry, spiritually received. And someone who's estranged from God, dead in their sins, do not have the spirit of God. Do you know someone like this? Maybe as we've talked, as we come to a close, maybe you've thought of someone that you've engaged, that you've talked to. Maybe they're hostile, maybe they're not. And maybe you see hypocrisy or inconsistency creep up and you say, but I've been so clear. I've presented these airtight arguments that are logical and cogent And yet, it's lost on them. And there's a reason for that. Because a dead heart can't receive the things that are of life until God regenerates that heart. So what's the response to irrational thought and inconsistency? Do you just not talk to these people? Do you just say, you know what, it's a lost cause. And I was thinking about this a lot after our conversation, Aaron, with y'all's attempt to engage them, but to no avail And although I don't have the full answers and I don't have the best strategy that I can write a 500-page book on, these are some things that I've thought about by way of closing. I think the way that we as a church engage and respond to the brokenness of the world, to the hatred of the world, I think, first of all, we respond with grace. This is simple. Be gracious to those who mock and scoff. Be gracious to those who are sincere, but sincerely wrong. Demonstrate the same grace that was extended to you when you were the one stuck in your unbelief. When you could not believe, grace was imparted to you. Grace was displayed. Grace was shown and given to you. And you were the passive agent. You didn't go looking for it. God sought to give it. And he ensured that you would have it. So pray for that same grace and extend that same grace to others. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. And the unmerited favor of God is the only thing that separates you from the vilest of sinners. So respond with grace. And then respond with the gospel. Man's greatest detriment is his unbelief. His sin, obviously. His sins separate him from Christ, but a saving belief in Jesus makes us right with God despite our sins. Our sins are taken care of. We're still sinners. We don't believe in sinless perfectionism. That's nonsense. The Bible never supports such nonsense. It's unbiblical. It's heretical. And that's the beauty of the gospel is that even though we continue sinning, Jesus keeps us. That's why the Bible uses continuous language when it says he's keeping us, he's saving us. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because every day we need to be carried all the way to the finish line every day because we haven't arrived at this point where Jesus took care of things and now he can be hands-off because we've achieved or arrived at sinless perfection. That's not what the Bible teaches. So there's no substitute for the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Faith comes through hearing and hearing comes from the word of Christ and then the scripture tells us how then shall we call on him? In whom they have not believed and how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard and how are they to hear without someone who's preaching and how are they to preach unless they are sent as as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news of christ you see it's simple we respond with grace we respond with the gospel there's no substitute for the gospel gospel's always the right lane to stay in. Don't try to stay in someone else's lane. If you can't argue science and show the marriage between science and religion and all that stuff, don't try. Just stay with the gospel. If you can't articulate all these things about a fetus and about all these things when you're encountering someone who's, in a, who, who's for abortion, you know, stay with the gospel. You know, because I do think these are gospel issues, 100%. And I'll share this final illustration and we'll pray. I don't know if I've shared it before, but it, it's, it's, it's a good thing to end on. There's a, and I think, I think Aaron sent me this video. There's a guy who stood outside of an abortion clinic for years and years and years. And he knew all the arguments. He knew Latin phrases. He knew more biology than any of the women that had come to destroy their babies. And he would go and engage them in this conversation. And I don't think he ever saw one. <coughs> Maybe he did that changed their mind if they did change their mind they changed their mind because he convinced them that it was in fact murder but their changing of mind wasn't so much on a spiritual or maybe even a moral level or maybe in some form of morality it was but it wasn't because jesus considers life a first-year issue and they didn't care they didn't consider these spiritual implications of all these things and then he decided that he would shift gears and he said, You know what? I'm not getting anywhere. I know all these facts. I know biology. I know science. I'm trying to engage them. It's just not convincing them because what he realized is they don't care. He said, I would make an airtight argument and they would finally get to the place where they couldn't argue and they'd say, Well, I'm going to do it anyway, revealing what a dead heart really does. And it focuses on self, it places our self at the center of our universe. And he said, I'm just going to give the gospel. So he started giving the gospel. Instead of going into all these, all these arguments, instead of dissecting the issue, instead of the biological vernacular, he said, let me just give you the gospel. And he said, one after another, these ladies saw new value in life, new value in their unborn child, because they encountered Jesus through his gospel. You see, the gospel's the answer. It's simple. It's simple. Always go to the gospel. We live by it. Our identity's in it. And that's what we use. That's what God has given us. He calls it the keys to the kingdom. The reason the church will not fall, the church will always prevail, is because of the gospel. And so that should be a reminder to us. Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Father, I do ask that you would make us ever mindful of the gospel. Father, that it will have such impact on our life, Lord, that we readily acknowledge that our identity is in the gospel and in the gospel exclusively and father i do pray lord that uh, that we would consider the reality that people all around us lord are, are are lost lord and they're lost and they have hearts that need to be replaced with hearts of flesh spiritually speaking Lord may we be diligent as those who bring the warning. May we be diligent to say, here's the truth, here's the reality that truth is pressing in on them. But at the same time, but here's the hope. Here's the other side of that reality that there's grace, that there's mercy and forgiveness and divine salvific eternal love that God has for all who believe. Lord, may that be the mantra of our lives. May we be marked by our belief and our understanding and our loyalty to the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.